If you're a regular attender at Charlotte Chapel, I do hope that you get a copy of our CBC online, which gives up-to-date information about our missionary family. Every two months we get up-to-date information, uh, usually by email, so that we can pray for our missionary family. It has a picture of each of the 40 or so people that we support. And this month's edition, if you haven't got one, you should get one. Uh, Joyce was who organizes this and puts a lot of work into it, asked them to tell us a little bit about themselves and their background. So if you're praying this week, on the 19th of the month, you'll see that the person who is in focus is one of our members called Barbara Hodder. Barbara's, uh, in 1987, went to work in the Philippines. And she lives in the northern Philippines and works with a community of people called the Miao Yao people. And she's been there, and for the last 17 years, she's spent her life, along with local colleagues, writing this language down for the first time, preparing an alphabet, and painstakingly translating the New Testament into this language. And later this year, God willing, it's just being typeset now, around November this year, it's going to be a great historic day for this community. For the first time, they'll have God's Word, the New Testament, in their own language. It's always exciting and interesting to see people who read the Bible for the very first time, especially the four Gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And it's interesting for one very good reason. And it's this, they don't know what comes next. I know of another community where the translator began his translations in a village in a remote jungle area, and with his helper, he translated Mark's Gospel, the one that we're looking at. And every evening, around the campfire, the people would gather together, and they would read what they translated that day. And he relates how, when they translated the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, the people were absolutely distraught. They'd read this story of this wonderful man and all that he'd done, and then he was nailed to a cross. And for a whole day, the people went around with long faces and, and just felt terribly sad until the next evening when they read the story of the resurrection and realized that he was really alive and God had raised him uh, from the dead. Ironically and tragically, there are an increasing number of people in our own society in Britain who don't know the stories of Jesus. And not because it's not available in English. You can read this book in dozens of translations freely. Available, well, you have to pay for them, but I mean, nobody stops you reading them. That's what I mean by freely. Available for you to read. Not because they can't read them, but people aren't bothered about reading them. However, I guess that most of us here this morning, and you may be an exception, but most of us know the stories about Jesus or, or know the, the basic outline of, of what happens. And, and no doubt you've heard many sermons on them before. I keep close records of when and where I preach so I don't do the same thing ad infinitum. And I see in my records that our passage this morning, I preached on this on the very first occasion I ever preached in this pulpit, on the 16th of September, 1990. Now, most of you probably weren't there, and most of those who were there have probably forgotten what I said. Uh, Nonetheless, it's hard to recover the impact of hearing the story for the first time. And today's story, which the children presented so wonderfully and visibly to us, is, is a classic example. The story of the healing of a paralyzed man. 
And I've entitled it, for reasons I'll explain in a moment, The Easier Miracle. And you'll find it in Mark's Gospel. So first of all, it would help if you take a Bible, there are some Bibles in the pews, and, and open it in front of Mark chapter 2. It's page 1003, uh, if you have a pew Bible, page 1003, Mark 2, uh, verses 1 to 12. Let's give you a moment to find that. Now, this is a story, although you probably wouldn't realise it if you've read it many times, this is a story with a big surprise in it. Not just for first-time readers, but a really big surprise for those who were actually present when this happened. So, let me retell the story with some background information and see if we can recapture in some way the shock value of this story. So, Look with me, first of all, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. Uh, a few days later means, if you read in the previous chapter that we studied together, Jesus had been on a preaching tour around Galilee, the, the, the lake, visiting different communities, preaching the good news about Jesus, and now we learn that he'd come home. Now, you know that Jesus came from Nazareth, but home was his home base. He seemed to have made his base in this town called Capernaum, on the northwest shore of of Galilee, and home was probably the home of Simon and Andrew, two of the fishing brothers who he called to be his followers who had a home there, although some people think that Jesus may have had a house of his own or a rented property, but I think it's more likely that this is the home of Simon and Andrew. Verse 2, so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Jesus was a popular figure who had burst onto the scene of national life, drawing huge crowds with his compelling preaching. Everywhere he went, he was mobbed. And his homecoming today was no exception. However, as on the previous occasion we read about the synagogue in Capernaum, his sermon is interrupted again by something that happens. Verse 3, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed friend carried by four of them. It was not just the preaching of Jesus that drew, uh, drew the crowds, it was also the fact that he had the power to heal the sick, to make the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the leper cleanse. So whenever it was rumoured anywhere that Jesus is around, the crowds flock to that place, especially the sick. Some people were just too sick to get to Jesus, and among them is this paralysed man. He's probably a quadriplegic, we call him today. But he had four friends who were determined that he should not miss out on the chance of being healed. So, taking a corner of his sleeping mat or mattress each, they picked him up and carried him to the place where they heard that Jesus was preaching. And when they got there, they found there was a problem. When I first read this story, in the King James or Authorised Version, it actually says there they couldn't get near for the press. And only later did I discover it didn't mean the, the, the newspaper and the media. It was a way of translating in Old English the crowds that were pressing in. It was so tight and compacted. They couldn't get anywhere near. But these four men were not lacking in perseverance or initiative. Verse 4, since they couldn't get into Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the man, the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. Now, of course, the houses in those days didn't have pointy roofs like ours do. They had flat roofs with stairs at the side. 
I lived, my wife and I and family lived in one in, in, in Pakistan for a couple of years. And you often went on the roof. There's a good sea breeze there. You could dry your clothes there and admire the view. And the roof materials were not like ours either. In those days, they had big beams across ways and then branches the other way across and then they laid compacted clay on top of that and, 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 and compacted it and it hardened in the sun and Luke tells us in his gospel that this house had tiles as well, either ceiling tiles or, or, or roof tiles. So it would be relatively easy and not too difficult to repair afterwards for them to make a hole and enlarge it so they could lower their friend through, presumably by a rope on each corner, through the ceiling, onto the floor, right in front of Jesus. The original Greek says they unroof the roof. What the owner of the house thought, we don't know. What the crowd thought as bits of debris began to fall on their heads, we can only imagine. So, the paralyzed man is slowly lowered down until he's reached ground level in front of Jesus. Now we read, Jesus looked up and saw these four friends looking down. He looked down and saw this paralyzed man. And we read, when he saw their faith, the faith of the four men, and probably the faith of the man lying there as well who was paralyzed, he said, now here's the shock value. Imagine you're a first-time reader, and you've read Mark's Gospel so far. Imagine you're in the crowd, and you know what Jesus has done so far. What do you expect Jesus to say next? Surely he will look down and seeing this man will say, take up your mat and walk. That's what you expect. That's what everybody expected. But Jesus didn't. Jesus said something unexpected. He said, son, it's a term of affection, dear boy, term of love, son, your sins are forgiven. And this raises all sorts of questions. Questions that never would have been asked if Jesus had simply healed the man, which is why Jesus said it instead of instantly healing the man. Because he wants to provoke some questions on the part of those who are present and on the part of us who read this even today. Simply want to say, if you look at the text in front of us, there are two questions that this raises essentially. There are actually two sets of questions. The first, which the teachers of the law asked Jesus, and the second, which Jesus asked the teachers of the law. And the first set of questions can be summarized as, who does this fellow think he is? Who does this fellow think he is? We've met the teacher of the law once before in Mark's Gospel in chapter 1, verse 22. We read that Jesus amazed the people because he taught as one with authority, not as the teachers of the law. A reminder for those who weren't here when we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. The teachers of the law, or scribes, were experts in the law of Moses. That's the first five books of our Bible. They specialised in how to interpret it and how to apply it practically in life. They devoted themselves to this task by a rigorous course of study. 
And finally, usually not until they were at least 40 years old, they were then ordained as official teachers of the law. They were regarded as the intellectual and religious elite of first century Israel. They often held important positions in the community. You can be sure that the crowds parted when they arrived at the house and let them get through and that they got front seats. And they are the ones who raised this question. They're a kind of religious police, if you like, who evaluate what anyone teaches and passes judgment on it, whether it's good or bad, right or wrong. And now for the first, but not the last time, they come into conflict with this new and young religious teacher who is not ordained at all, and who comes of all places, comes from a place called Nazareth, which has no reputation at all. And the issue that is raised here is the most fundamental issue of all, which they are raising, and it's this. Who does this man think he is? Look at verse 7. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who does he think he is? The words of Jesus raise the issue. Raise the stakes. It's not as though Jesus put some spin on them by saying, Son, God has forgiven your sins. That had happened in the past. There's a famous story in the Old Testament when King David sinned against God by committing adultery and conspiracy to murder. The prophet Nathan came to him and told him, you're the man, you're guilty. And David said, I've sinned against the Lord. And the prophet responded and said, the Lord has forgiven your sins. But he was acting on behalf of the Lord. It seems pretty clear that Jesus is speaking in his own name and on his own authority when he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And that's why the teacher of the law was so upset, because he is usurping the prerogative that lies only with God, for only God can forgive sins. And to claim that is to be guilty of blasphemy. So they are right, in a sense, to suspect Jesus of blasphemy. Who does he think he is? He is a blasphemer. But, there is another possibility. One which does not enter their heads and which never really seriously enters their heads. And it's this, that Jesus grants forgiveness of sins because he is God. Because he is the Son of God. Now, under the law of Moses, if you read, if you're interested, it's not most people's daily devotional reading, but if you read Leviticus 24, you will discover that blasphemy was a capital crime. And as we read through this Gospel of Mark, this issue comes into focus. And the reason why Jesus was sentenced to death is not because he healed people. The reason Jesus was sentenced to death was because he claimed to be God. Right at the end of Mark's Gospel in chapter 14, Jesus has been arrested. He's taken before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish court, the highest authority in religious law in Israel. The high priest who's in charge asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard this blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as one worthy of death. Now, this is the most important question, in fact, in human history. Who is Jesus? 
Is he who he claims to be? And Jesus forces people to face up to this question. If this study in, the, in Mark's Gospel does not force you to seriously ask and examine this question, then I have failed in my task and our small groups have failed in their task as they study this every fortnight. The essential question Mark wants to ask is this, who is Jesus? So rather than immediately saying to this man, get up, take up your mat and walk, Jesus first says, son, your sins are forgiven. His critics are forced to face up to this question about his identity. Who does this fellow think he is? And knowing what they're thinking, because they don't voice their criticisms out loud, Jesus responds, as so often in his encounters with the religious authorities, by asking them some questions. Question two, addressed by Jesus to the teacher of the law, is this. Which is easier? Now, you need to follow this carefully. It's quite a, too complicated, but you need to stay awake and don't start thinking about your Sunday lunch yet. Just concentrate on here. Verses 8 and 9, all right? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. Now, notice something very important. The question here is about saying, not doing. Jesus is not asking them, which is more difficult to do? To, to forgive sins or to heal paralyzed people. No, he asks them, which is easier to say? Is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or... Get up, take your mat and walk. The answer is obvious. Anyone can say to a person, your sins are forgiven. I could say it to you and no one would know whether it happened or not, would they? However, if you were lying paralyzed down here and I say to you, get up and walk, then either it will happen or it won't happen, QED. So which is easier to say? Well, the answer is obvious. Your sins are forgiven. No doubt the teacher of the law thought Jesus was a fraud. Anyone can say your sins are forgiven. He was making claims that he couldn't fulfill and which couldn't be verified or not. And so Jesus says to them, verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, Take up your mat and walk. Now, there is a close connection in this story between sin and sickness. Some people have suggested that this man's paralysis was caused by some particular sin he had committed. In fact, some people even suggest that his paralysis was a kind of psychosomatic disorder. And once he'd sorted out the problems in his life, then he got up and walked. Or God put them straight for him. There is no evidence of that here. In fact, Jesus himself, on several occasions, speaks strongly against those who think there is a direct connection between a particular sickness and a particular sin. You may remember that story in John chapter 9, where there's a blind man, blind from birth, notice, sitting by the roadside, and the disciples of Jesus see him and say, Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus said, Neither. However, this does not mean that there is no connection between 
sickness and sin. All our sufferings, including sickness, all our problems, are symptoms of living in a fallen world and that fallen world came about through what we call the fall, described in Genesis 3, when our first parents rebelled against God. Now, Jesus has come into the world to address that problem, to deal with the fundamental human problem, which was caused by the fall. And he begins, therefore, to address the symptoms like sickness and demon possession, and even death. And the healing of this man, Jesus says, will show that the Son of Man, which is the term Jesus uses of himself, God's designated person, goes back in the book of Daniel, chapter 7 and verse 13, to show that this Son of Man, that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. So Jesus demonstrates that authority and puts his claim to forgive on the line by ordering the paralyzed man to get up and walk. In answer to his critics, Jesus demonstrates his authority to forgive sins by ordering the man to get up and walk. Now here's the crucial bit in the story. This will be compelling proof so that the teachers of the law and we will know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins or not. Unless, of course, nothing happens and the man continues to lie there. But in fact, the proof follows. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. However, it is clear from what follows that there were some in the audience who did not praise God. The teachers of the law were not convinced, despite the evidence. There's a well-known saying of a later rabbi of a view that was held at this time. This is what they said. There is no sick man healed of his sickness until all his sins have been forgiven him. As it is written, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. Psalm 103 that we read at the beginning of the service, verse 3. The subsequent healing of the paralyzed man demonstrates that his sins have been forgiven first. Jesus says, okay, if that's what you believe, No healing without forgiveness. Then this man is healed. The proof is there to see. I am the Lord who can forgive sins and heal diseases. But the teachers of the law will not believe in Jesus despite the evidence. Not because of the evidence, but despite the evidence that's right there in front of their eyes as this man gets up, parts through the crowd and walks home. Now, Let's conclude what we're saying, but also, more importantly, apply this to ourselves today. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. Get up, take your mat and walk. Well, clearly the answer we've said is your sins are forgiven. But let's ask a more difficult question. Which is easier to do? Is it easier to forgive sins? Or for someone to get up, take their mat and walk? Now the answer is different. The answer now is, it is easier. The easier miracle is for a person to get up, take his mat and walk. Healing is easier than forgiveness. Think about it for a moment. Doctors can heal sickness. In fact, they can heal a lot more sickness than doctors could in the first century when Jesus was around. Psychiatrists can help your depression. A win on the lottery 
can solve your financial worries at a stroke. A suitable spouse at this Valentine's weekend will certainly raise your self-esteem. But only Jesus can forgive sins. Only Jesus can restore you to the relationship with God for which you were made. Only Jesus can deal with the fundamental human problem, which is that we are estranged from God, separated from God by a rebellion, heading to a lost eternity, and that is why God sent His Son into the world, to forgive sins. You will call His name Jesus, the angel said to his parents. Why? Because He'll save His people from their sins. That's what He's come to do. And I simply want to say to you this morning, forgiveness of sins is the greatest miracle for you. You see, I don't know everyone here this morning. great thing about church like this is, I look around sometimes, particularly in the evening, I don't know half the congregation. It's probably a good thing in some ways, but it's a bit embarrassing when I shake your hand at the door and you've been coming for the last five years. But some of you have been coming to Charlotte Chapel for some time. Maybe you've been to Christianity Explored or you've, you know, you've started coming with a friend and whatever. And you, why did you come? Well, I guess fundamentally most of us come to church for the first time, if, if we've not been brought up to do it. We, we come because you've got problems. They may be overt problems. Your life may be falling apart. Maybe your marriage is broken up. Maybe you're in financial difficulty. Maybe you're unemployed. Or maybe it's something much deeper. You've got a good marriage. You've got a good home and family. You've got the car and the second car and maybe the third car and your prospects and pension look good. But deep down, you know within you, there's still something missing. There's something that doesn't satisfy and you're thinking to yourself, there's something more to life than this. But you're born and you live and then that's it, you die. There is within us an emptiness. And that emptiness is caused by the fact that we're made for God. We're made for a relationship with Him and once that's right, all the other things fall into place. And only Jesus can forgive sins. Only Jesus can put you right with God and restore you to that relationship. That's why he came into the world. That's why he was condemned to die before the high priest and they passed sentence of death on him. They thought that they were doing the right thing, but they were doing the wrong thing, but it was the right thing because it was God's plan to send his son into the world to die in our place, to bear the punishment we deserve, to suffer the wrath of God, for our rebellion, so that we might be restored to a right relationship with God. That's what it's all about. And the greatest miracle for you is forgiveness of sins. And I simply ask you this morning, are you forgiven? Have you been put right with God? Are you a member of His family? Do you have that assurance that no matter what happens, whether sickness or health or want or luxury or whatever it might be, that your life is secure because you belong to God. And that lasts for eternity. And I also want to say to those of you who say, yeah, that's right for me. I want to say to something else. Forgiveness of sins is the greatest miracle, not only for you, it is the greatest miracle for your friends. You see, we talked about this before, but let me say it again. Some of us think, if we could only get our friends to see some great big miracle, they would all believe. Listen, Jesus did amazing miracles. He raised people from the dead and at the end of his life hardly anybody believed in it. You know, it's the David Blaine factor. I don't know how he did that, but wow, it's a fantastic trick, you know. 
and maybe a concern for your friends. And it's right to be concerned. I mean, I've spent pastoral time trying to help people whose lives are in a mess, who want to talk about their marriages and, and their careers and what's happened in their lives and everything else. Don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not just interested in some kind of super spiritual, up there, ether sort of, uh, out the ether experience. It's rooted in reality. But like a doctor who looks at a person who is sick, what you want to deal with if they've got a headache is not the symptoms, but try and find out why they've got a headache. If they've got a stomachache, don't just give them some, some uh, Alka-Seltzer, but you know, think to yourself, why have they got this stomachache all the time? What's the root cause of their problems? And the greatest need of your friends is that their sins might be forgiven, they might be restored to God. See, I'll pray for your sick friends. I will. Can't be absolutely sure that God will heal them. But if your friends really want to know God's forgiveness, I can assure them of that, that Jesus Christ can forgive sins. The greatest need for you, the greatest need for your friends. See, sometimes we think, wow, if only I'd lived when Jesus was on earth. If only I could have gone to that house in Capernaum. Wow, just think what might have happened to me. Nothing better than will happen to you today in Charlotte Chapel. In fact, less, because this is before the death of Jesus and his resurrection and ascension. Because Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And we're all in the same boat. We all need that forgiveness. That's your essential problem. Problem for your friends. But it is only possible to receive this forgiveness. You must receive it by repentance, that is, admitting that you're a sinner and that you need God's help and that you've got a problem, instead of blaming on everybody else, or just saying you're better than other people. It is saying, Lord, I'm a sinner and putting your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the message Jesus came to bring. Right at the beginning of Mark's Gospel. He said, the good news is here. The kingdom's arrived. Repent. Turn from your old way of life, and believe the good news. Now, the evidence is there for those who were interested in looking at it. Most people who don't become Christians don't do so because they've examined the evidence and rejected it. Some people do, but most people, it's because they've never looked at the evidence and when they've seen the evidence, they reject it steadfastly. Because it means handing over your life to Jesus Christ. It means putting God at the centre. You see, and I've almost finished, the, the teachers of the law were not the only ones who did not believe in Jesus. Most of the people in Capernaum, his hometown, did not believe in Jesus. Almost all of them. How do I know that? Well, later in his ministry, when Jesus has moved on from Capernaum to Jerusalem and is facing the cross, he speaks about the people of Capernaum. And here is his verdict on them. They have no excuse, he says. It's what Jesus says. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? You know, will you get to heaven? No, you'll go down to the depths, to hell. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah, this is Jesus speaking, if the miracles that had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day, the people would have repented seeing that. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. That's pretty sobering stuff, is it not? The evidence is compelling. And we have no excuse on the day of judgment. We, we've thought about people who are getting the Bible for the first time in their own language. There is still two or three thousand language groups still waiting to hear God's word in their own language. Friends, none of us in this country have any excuse. You can walk into Waterstones if you don't like Wesley Owen. 
and you can go and buy a Bible and read it and hear who Jesus is. You can read hundreds of books and commentaries that explain it. You can get videos, tapes, goodness knows what. You can listen to our website and listen to every sermon preached in the last 10 years or so. You're really that serious. But or, or lots of other better sermons on other websites. We have no excuse. On the day of judgment, you're sitting here in Charlotte Chapel this morning, I simply say to you, you have no excuse on the day of judgment. That's a serious matter. It's a matter of life and death, eternal life and death. Many years ago, an open-air preacher stood up in the Barrowlands Market in Glasgow, holding up a ten-pound note, which was a lot of money in those days. He shouted in a loud voice, I will give this ten-pound note to anyone who can answer a question from the Bible. Huge crowd of people gathered around waiting to be the first one to give the answer. His question was in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There were no takers. Let's pray together.